0: This podcast is the exclusive property of Wild Law Pod LLC. No portion of this podcast should be rebroadcast or reproduced without the express permission of Wild Law Pod. Welcome to the second episode of Wyoming Law Pod. Today, my guest is Matt Kaufman. Matt is a partner at Hathaway Kuntz in Cheyenne, Wyoming. His practice centers on business, corporate, transactional, and litigation matters. He received his undergraduate degree from Wyoming in 2002 and his JD from Wyoming in 2005 as a member of the Order of Barristers. In 2012, he received his LLM in Entrepreneurial Law from the University of Colorado at Boulder. He is an accomplished litigator, being named one of the top 40 under 40 trial lawyers in Wyoming, and he has obtained a million-dollar verdict for an injured client in Laramie County, Wyoming. Pretty damn good for a guy that you can ask complicated security law questions and who grew up on a working cattle ranch outside of Chugwater, Wyoming. Matt is also a member of the Governor's Endow Council, And one of Matt's latest ventures includes being a co-founder and acting chairman of the Array School of Technology and Design in Cheyenne, Wyoming, which is Wyoming's first private coding school. Matt lives in Cheyenne with his wonderful wife, Regan, and two lovely children. So, Matt, how's the practice treating you these days?
1: The practice is great. Thanks for asking. Um, Yeah, right now, business is, uh, for us, very busy, very steady. It's uh, growing. Uh, We've been fortunate at our firm to uh, really focus the last five or six years on um, more technology oriented companies and uh, securities, intellectual property, those types of practice areas, which fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, uh, there's not a lot of other people in Wyoming focusing on those areas.
0: And so uh, we've seen a tremendous amount of growth in those practice areas. And I would think a big portion of that is your decision to pursue your LLM and entrepreneurial law. Could you give our listeners a little bit of a background about where you were at in your career when you decided to pursue the LLM? Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, So I, just by way of background, right after law school, uh, when I graduated in 2005, I did a a clerkship for two years. Um, I cut that clerkship just a little bit short when I was offered a job at Hathaway & Coons, and started practicing there in 2007. Um, It it was interesting to me, coming out of law school, I always knew that I had a proclivity proclivity and an interest in um, transactional work, uh, in business and corporate work, and I was fortunate at Hathaway & Coons to fall very quickly into some clients that afforded me the opportunity to Uh, work almost exclusively on that for a period of time and in doing so it um, it became evident to me over the first two three four years of of practice that there was an absence in Wyoming of lawyers that focused in any way shape or form on technology related um, applications on software on intellectual property Um, and so I saw a real opportunity there and as I practiced at Hathaway Coons and approached uh, my time, my, the opportunity for me to become a partner with the firm, um, I, at that point in time, had developed a, a clientele of, of tech, uh, startup, clients, and I, I was really weighing in my mind if I if I want to launch this practice and this is going to be the type of practice that I, I pursue the rest of my career. In my mind, I was kind of at a crossroads either. One, I could you know take a bunch of CLE and try to develop additional expertise on my own Uh, but that's sometimes not very easy to market Uh, the other 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 avenue I saw was to go get a specialized degree in LLM Um, I I saw that as a cost because obviously you gotta pay for the LLM it's gonna be time away from the practice but I also saw it as an as an opportunity to create some uh, some new marketing for myself and for the firm to attract additional types of clients. So I started, I, I approached my uh, my law firm here about the idea of me pursuing it and what I wanted to do with the degree. And uh, I was incredibly grateful. They were all very supportive and, and saw where I wanted to go with it and saw what I wanted to do. So I applied. There was only two schools at the time in the country that offered an entrepreneurial-focused uh, LLM. Um, one was at Duke University and one was at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And so obviously I wasn't going to go across the country and completely leave the practice law for a year. So, um, CU Boulder was the choice that would at least allow me the opportunity to commute and to, to maintain practice. So I took the plunge, I did it and, uh, commuted to Boulder for, uh, every day for a year. And, uh, and got the degree. I was able to maintain um, most of my clients. My, my uh, now partners and uh, my colleagues at the firm were great in supporting me through that. And uh, so that's kind of how it came to be. So I actually became a partner January one midway through my LLM. So so right smack in the middle of the LLM program is when I became partner. And I knew that was coming when I started the LLM program. But that was uh, that was a conscious decision on my part to to
0: go for that right out of the gate. And that's just an amazing amount of support from your, you know, not at that time, but your then-to-be partners at the firm. How much planning went into preparing your clients and the staff and your other attorneys at the firm for your, you know, daily absence? A lot,
1: actually. Um, You know, thankfully, we live in a day where it's pretty easy to work and be out of the office. Um, One of the... One of the benefits, I have to tip my hat to the University of Colorado Law School, the the class of LLM students was relatively small. Um, The year that I was there, um, there was only nine of us. And so they actually gave uh, me an office space, uh, an empty office space that was for adjunct professors. And so while I was down on campus, you know, I would often leave Cheyenne at 430 or so in the morning to beat traffic and get down to Boulder. and it was really great having that office because I could I could do work um, while I was in Boulder during the day. I could take calls with clients, and then get my classes out of the way and, and head back. So uh, the setup just sort of amazingly came together for me and, and worked. But yeah, I did have to plan uh, with my partners. There was definitely planning in terms of cases and case appearances, and um, you know managing client obligations. But uh, it, it
0: it just kind of came together. And I would think to some degree, or to some degree, the University of Boulder must anticipate that they're going to have practicing lawyers in this program. It's not typical, probably, for someone to just go straight through school to an LLM. I think that's probably
1: true to some degree. Um, You know, a lot of the, uh, as an example, some of the other LLM programs I looked at uh, were the tax LLMs. Um, There's some very prominent programs around the country uh, with LLMs and tax. They they kind of missed the mark for me because I didn't exactly want to be a tax lawyer. I wanted more tax training, but that, that's not what my sole focus was. Um, but what I did find with those programs, to your point, was just that that most of those programs are geared towards people with some pra- practice experience, and not that that lessens the rigor of the program. I don't think, but there's there is some understanding, uh, certainly from the law school that these people have careers and they're they're pursuing a career. So, uh, the the law school was great. Um. But I also have to say it was a different experience going back to law school after having practiced for a number of years. Uh, In some ways, I wish I'd had that opportunity in law school because uh, different from the initial law school experience where you're, I don't know, I mean, you're you're soaking it in, you're taking in what you can, but there's some element of survival and just kind of getting through it. And uh, going back after practicing and having the opportunity to just only take courses that were directly applicable to my clients that were existing at the time, I found myself just in a whole different mode of you know, being hungry for that information, absorbing it. And a lot of it was information I could go home the next day and apply to clients I was working on.
0: So it was pretty, pretty unique in that way. And I think that's one of the things that struck me when I first met you and learned about your LLM. Is I had actually been kind of under the impression that, and I think it's because every lawyer I'd ever met before got an LLM, it was in tax. And I almost assumed that that was the only LLM out there. I mean, was it just pure luck or how did you kind of learn about um, this entrepreneurial LLM that was out there that would help your clients?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, again, referencing back to some of the clients that I had the opportunity to work on early in my career at Hathaway & Coons, the the type of work I was getting exposed to was a lot of merger and acquisition, um, a lot of unique corporate structuring, um, a lot of the business valuation types of issues involving uh, both intellectual property and then just, you know, blue sky, goodwill of companies. And so dealing with a lot of those types of issues in the transaction context, both with existing companies and startup companies, and then working with these clients to figure out funding solutions that um, almost always didn't involve a bank. You know, it was usually private capital of some type. Um, It just really opened my eyes and and exposed me to a whole different world of transactional work that, again, not that it doesn't exist in Wyoming, but there's not a lot of organized industry, at least there wasn't at the time, in Wyoming. And so um, as I evaluated how to get myself additional training in that, again, taking specific CLEs was one avenue that I saw, and that's certainly a, a viable avenue. I just wanted something that I could market to clients to set myself apart a little bit differently. And um, again, there there's there's business and corporate LLMs. There are um, transactional LLMs. There are uh, tax LLMs, and and lots of them, you know, focus and hit on different things. Again, I think I just got lucky because I fell into this entrepreneurial LLM, which just really hit those practice areas that I was trying to focus on, being the uh, a little bit of tax, um, intellectual property, and then a lot of deal structure uh, and finance. And it just was kind of a perfect
0: fit. That's very cool. And so, is the program completely structured, like in a cookie, uh, I guess, a cookie cutter type setup, or do you have some flexibility in creating the, the LM program for yourself? Yeah, in, in my case,
1: it's much like law school where there's a certain number of courses that you're obligated to take. Um, but for a year program, there's not that many courses you're taking anyways. so um, There's only two or three courses that they required you to take everything else. They allowed me to build in and then um, so, so I did I get I got to select for example. I got to choose a couple of tax courses. I got to choose different types of securities courses and um, so, so that was that was neat and then in addition um, there's a an academic writing portion and so I spent six months after the program was over, researching and and writing an academic article on the topic of my choosing,
0: which I made about Wyoming. Wonderful. So take me through kind of a typical day as a full-time lawyer at a medium to large size Wyoming firm on the partnership track and a full-time student.
1: Yeah, that's a great
0: question. So
1: um, there was definitely a transition, I would say, as I was, again, I, I entered this LLM program knowing that partnership was coming for me, and so it wasn't uh, it wasn't an unknown at that point. But developing my own clients and my own practice was still an unknown at that point in time. So uh, I was I was very conscientious. I I'd have to give I have to give a ton of credit actually to one of my early mentors, um, and you can ask anybody around this firm. I am an absolute disciple for the idea of, of personal business planning. And so I, as an example, this is going to sound really nerdy and I don't care, um, I, I keep and maintain my own personal business plan. I pull it up on a monthly basis. I rewrite it on a quarterly basis. Um, in fact, our, our firm, I've, I've shared my plan and commonly share my plan with all of the other attorneys in our firm, um, Have have taught some of our associates how to do the same thing, but uh, the the purpose in that for me is sort of setting out in advance, uh, what my time is going to look like. And I'm super intentional about what my time is going to look. At least I try to be, of course, with the practice of law, there's always emergencies and chaos and everything, but, um, all the more reason to me to try to be intentional about how I plan that time. And I was doing that back at this point in time. So the reason I'm setting that out is I was very intentional at that stage of my career about setting, uh, a specific amount of my time that was just gonna be for business development and I included at least for my purpose something like this LLM as business development because I saw it as an opportunity to network to gain additional expertise to get exposure to potential clients um, and to to learn how to market myself in new ways um, so going into the LLM before I started the LLM I mean, a typical day was probably like a lot of associates at law firms. I was here in the office um, all the time, uh, you know, managing uh, my own caseload, managing the the cases that the partners uh, had given me projects on or handed off to me, Um, trying to meet those billable hour, you know, requirements and and create as much revenue as I could. Um, As I transitioned into the LLM, I had to get a lot more selective about those clients. So for a period of time... I, I didn't take a lot of new small projects. I kind of kept the bigger ones that were ongoing and we did it out just so that it could be more flexible for me and my schedule. Um, as things did come up and, and as things came in the door that we felt we needed to take, of course, I just went into hyper communication mode with my with my law partners and colleagues about having them help help, help me cover things and you know, I was still able to manage things while I was out of the office, but just wasn't as able to be re- as responsive as needed to be. Um, so, so I, I think then as I transitioned into the LLM, the, the typical day looked like, as I said, I, I generally went to Boulder four days a week. Um, there was occasions where I would go five, but for the most part, I, I had it scheduled so I could go four days a week. So I would get up at, you know, uh, usually leave the door at, or leave my, my house out the door at 4:30 or so so I could be down in Boulder by six. That usually gave me a good couple of hours before my first class to finish up whatever I needed to get done. Um, then I would usually have two or three hours of class to 11. Um, I would usually spend a couple hour block over lunch, returning phone calls to clients, doing firm work. Um, and then I typically had one or two courses in the afternoon. And uh, and then would either head back or would get some work done there before I headed back, and then head back and come to the office and get what I could done uh, before I got up and started all over again. So I really tried to devote my time down there to getting the schoolwork done, so that when I was here um, in the office, I could just devote to work. And uh, that was kind of that was kind of my life for for a year. Um, of course, that changed a little bit as I. Like I said, midway through the LLM program, I became a partner of the firm, uh, then of course picked up some firm management responsibilities that got thrown into the mix, too. But again, my, my partners were fantastic. I, I don't think I was saddled with a lot of that very quickly
0: while I, was, while I was out. So about what time are you getting home then on your typical school day? Um, so funny
1: you should mention that because my wife and I have always been uh, deal makers with each other. And so... Uh, she was hugely supportive of me doing this, but one of the deals she always made with me was, um, I, you know, do what you got to do, but I want you to be home for dinner so we can have dinner as a family with the kids. So that's that's kind of been my MO from from day one. So I was always generally home for dinner, um, but then I would hang out with my kids and put them to bed. And then uh, my my usual or my I guess my norm during that period of time was be home by 6 or 6.30 and have dinner and hang out with the kids until they go to bed and then go back you know go back to work or work from home and get what I needed to get done.
0: So a big sacrifice from your wife to make this possible too.
1: Absolutely yeah for that for that year it was it was chaos for sure.
0: And how do you you know you're obviously a fit and healthy guy how do you make sure that you don't let your physical health kind of slide while you're putting all this extra demands on your time? That's a great
1: question so um you know, For that year, I'll be 100% honest, it was really difficult. I just had to fit it in where I could. Um, I did a lot of times take um, my bike with me down to Boulder or something when the weather was nice, and I would get out for a quick ride. Um, of course, the weekends I would try for sure to get out and do something on the weekends, but uh, it was it was difficult during during that time. have a much easier time now (laughs) just just being uh, in the office and practicing uh being able to fit in recreation so
0: so i mean anyone considering this really needs to put together a pretty comprehensive plan of what their work life and their family life is going to look like and then still expect it to be a really difficult process yeah i
1: think and i think you know different people could have uh, a million different outcomes for what they're looking for um you know, before I took the plunge, I got advice from a lot of people, a lot of people that had LLMs. I called several people that I knew, both in-state and out-of-state, that had LLMs. Um, I talked to a lot of my my vintage of lawyers, a lot of, um, you know, my classmates or, or people that were around my age that were um, right on the verge of becoming partners at law firms and what that was going to look like. And uh, I also got a lot of input from some of my mentors about you know, how to, how to map out what I wanted my practice to look like. Um, I've just always been one of those people, I just absolutely reject the notion of just falling into a practice and just kind of taking what's given to me. You know, I've been very, as I, as I mentioned, I'm a disciple for this planning. I'm, I'm very much a believer in mapping out what it is that I enjoy and how I want to spend my time. Cause I think I'll be better at doing those things that I enjoy. And so, um, that, that was definitely a part of this LLM decision for me was I felt it was another springboard opportunity moment for me to really take charge of what I wanted my practice to look like going forward. And so, uh, yeah, I think depending on what a person's vision is for themselves and what the application of that LLM, there's a million different outcomes. But for me, this just, it worked
0: perfectly. In terms of financial commitment, what can someone expect at Boulder to you know spend in tuition, books, and fees? Yeah, that
1: so that's a that's a hard one. To be perfectly honest, uh, well, I know what the I know what the LLM costs. The LLM costs about fifty thousand uh, dollars itself. That doesn't include you know my cost of driving down and you know staying and books and whatever else, which I just kind of managed and and, and took care of. Um, the, the, the cost that I have not been able to, and I've never really bothered to sit down and calculate is what it cost me in terms of income and revenue while I was doing it. Um, it definitely cost me something. Again, I was super lucky because half of the LLM, I was on a salary as an associate, and uh, so my firm was hugely supportive in that way. Um, and that was, that was honestly, that was my offering to the firm, was, hey, you guys keep paying me a salary until I become a partner. I'll pay for this thing on my own. Just, you know, <laughs> don't fire me midway through. And uh, and then, you know, midway through, then I became a partner where my income was solely and completely dependent on what I produced. And so there was definitely a sacrifice on my part in the early months of that LLM because I was not billing as much as I could or maybe should have been. Um, but I think all my partners would agree I quickly made that up.
0: So based on your experience, would you recommend someone who's interested in entrepreneurial law going straight through law school and then getting their LLM, or would you recommend getting some time in the real world first? Yeah, I think for, for, for me, well, and again, I think it probably depends for a lot
1: of people on what their background is. Um, you know, someone that's got an MBA, for an example, or someone that had a business undergrad that has... A lot more exposure to the tax and finance than maybe a lot of times we get in law school, or um, I don't know. There's there's people out there that have got really unique experience with with marketing and intellectual property and or engineering and intellectual property and those types of things. And so I think depending on the background, maybe there's different individual skill sets that you that you want to get out of it. But there is no doubt in my mind that getting some real-world experience to figure out how this knowledge is going to be applied to your clients was invaluable for me. I think had I gone straight through from law school and and done it, I would not have gotten nearly as much out of it as I did.
0: And I think that 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 makes a lot of sense, just given that you actually have real-world problems that you probably can ask your professors about, bounce off the other students, that you just wouldn't have fresh out of school.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Like I said, I was, I was unique. I mean, I, I felt like an outlier in my class of, of people that I'm sitting there taking these classes from, because some of the classes that I would take, like, you know, the tax classes and such, there were regular JD students in there. And then there's me, probably the only guy in the room that's taking the bar exam. <laughs> and uh, so I feel a little strange and out of my element. But at the same point in time, I'm just feverishly taking notes and you know understanding that, oh look at that that provision of the tax code directly affect affects the operating agreement that I'm drafting you know next week, and just the the real world ability to take that knowledge and apply it was just so
0: so neat for me to see and I bet it's just much more interesting to hear some boring statutes in the tax code if you're like. Wow, I think I can save my client $180,000 next year because I learned this in two minutes today. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah,
1: there's a number of, of, of contexts in which I was able to apply something to my client's benefit and that was really cool to see.
0: So I mean Wyoming isn't necessarily considered I wouldn't say an entrepreneurial hotbed, yeah. but it's definitely not like a dearth of innovation either and there's some great industries here that need innovation. Um, how did you know that the skills that you were going to acquire would be needed in Wyoming? That's a, that's probably my favorite question to answer. I get that question a
1: lot. Um, you know, again, hearkening back to coming out of my clerkship, I had, a, I had a really good handle for myself, at least, what kind of stuff interested me. I had been involved in a couple of startup companies, um, was involved in, in my family's business, and so I, I knew that I loved kind of the business angle and the transactional angle on things and uh, so as I started representing clients and I started practicing on a daily basis and understanding what a lot of our clients needs were uh, again this was 10 years ago now but it just became painfully evident to me that um Silicon Valley and Boulder, Colorado and and you know all these places where there is the uh, this tremendous momentum of tech development That yeah. it was coming, you know, and it might not be tomorrow It might not be next year. It might be ten years from now, but it's coming And as, as again as I one of my law partners Lucas Buckley and I joined the firm at the same time and so we Constantly and always just had these conversations about what we thought the legal profession was going to look like for us and what the legal landscape in Wyoming was going to look for us. And what we saw and what I still do see is a generation of baby boomer lawyers that are, I mean, heavy hitters. These are the, you know, the, the guys that we all idolize and know to be the, the really um, big lawyers around the state of Wyoming. But um, none of them, in, in my experience, none of them really practice heavily in areas that affect tech companies or intellectual property or securities law. You know, there, Sure, there's a lot of transactional lawyers, there's a lot, a lot of litigators, there's a lot of general business lawyers, but um, I think the call of Wyoming over the last 20 and 30 years in the law practice has been more towards that general business and, and corporate, not so much in the specialist. And again, as I as so I built a practice with these clients and we started understanding what their problems were, we just saw more and more and more need for these specialized areas. And we, as we looked at the legal landscape, we saw all these lawyers that, that didn't do that. And being at the stage of, of their career that they all were, we didn't see it was likely that any of them were going to pivot and start doing that. And so we saw it as a real opportunity to focus on those things early in, um, yeah, I think, like I said, my, my firm has been great in supporting me in that endeavor of trying to really, really push the car towards more specialized um, areas of practice of law. And uh, I think here we are 10 years later, and and it's exciting to see the, the theory coming true and that, in fact, there is more and more and more demand for, for intellectual property representation. I mean, nowadays, everybody has a trademark, and uh, every new business that starts has a trademark issue. and. Um, so registration of a trademark and understanding the Lanham Act and how your trademark interacts with your website domain and just all these little things that there's not very many lawyers out there that focus and, and understand those things. Or for us, being able to represent companies raising money and navigate securities laws and understanding what you can and can't do properly and legally and what types of offerings are exempt and those types of things. Because um, again, I, I in, in my experience and in my view of the world, there's a tremendous amount of growth in the business community that is sort of outside the traditional financing realm where you're just dealing with you know regular old real estate collateral or machinery and equipment and you know doing a loan financing and funding your business that way so much more of it is geared around uh, angel investors and venture capital and you know startup capital seed capital and all these different types of specialized private money and so understanding those dynamics to, to me, it was just a really cool value add that we could bring.
0: Well, I think there's probably a lot of lawyers in Wyoming who are very competent in most business situations who might not even realize that a transaction was involving securities law and could get themselves in a lot of trouble trying to step in their toes in the water in that area. So that um, that area is probably one area that we've talked about more than any other
1: area in our firm in terms of, of a malpractice risk and just... Um, appreciating the risk that's out there, I think when you talk about tax or intellectual property or some of those other specialized or you know even secured transactions or something, um, it's it's kind of easy to spot sometimes um, but that that issue is a little different. It's unique. It's outside of my wheelhouse. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Securities since since our firm has become more uh, involved, and now we have two or three of us that do securities related stuff, and we're we're really focusing a lot on deals. Uh, we were just fortunate enough to be the first firm in Wyoming to do a crowdfunding deal. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you, um, here in Wyoming. So as as we dove into those issues and worked really closely with the Secretary of State, it, it, you're absolutely right, it's it's both mind-blowing to me and, and humbling to see how many deals are getting done every day out there that absolutely violate securities laws and people don't know it. But, I mean, not just lawyers, business people too. And so I think understanding, uh, you know, what that, what that regulatory sandbox looks like is really important because it might not be that somebody's going to come out of the woodwork and see you for malpractice because you didn't know about it, but it creates leverage points for your client or exposure points for your client if the deal ever goes bad. And uh, that's something that's scary to me.
0: Well, and what are some of the red flags that a, you know, a regular practitioner, business practitioner in Wyoming... Can look for and be like, well, I maybe I need to figure out some more, and maybe securities laws are involved here. Yeah, so
1: um, I'll qualify this by saying this is not legal advice, because <laughs> this is this is a facts and circumstances test. But one of the lines that I give my clients uh, all the time is, look, if you are taking somebody's money for a business venture, and they have the expectation that they're going to get a return on that investment. You've got a securities issue um you know it's 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 really easy to see it when you got two or three parties and they're forming an llc or a corporation and everyone's contributing in some way shape or form to the management and control yeah you probably don't have an issue but the second you have one or two people doing all the work and a bunch of other people putting in money and they're not doing the work and expecting a return that fits the classic definition of securities and uh I, you, you then suddenly have to be concerned about, is there an exemption available for me? Am I properly disclosing the deal? Am I properly structuring the deal? And uh, what's the risk to me as a lawyer and what's the risk to my client if that doesn't happen? And what are the risks to the client if the, if the lawyer misses that? Well, um, there are some really, uh, really in, in impressively draconian causes of action available to people um, who buy securities uh, in a context in which the securities uh, was not properly disclosed to them. And so as an example, everything that's not a private security, so we talk about private placements and private offering, anything that's not that is presumed under the law to be a public securities, right? The court requirement that you have to register it. And uh, there are causes of action available to public registered securities that are also available to private securities if people don't follow the proper proper disclosure mechanisms. So, so that's what I'm talking about. Is you open yourself up to new risks as a company and, and as
0: a lawyer? And that's probably one of the worst phone calls a lawyer could ever get is finding out that you know two years before they did something minor that is now really hurting a client. Yeah, and like
1: I said, what's been scariest to me is to see deals where lawyers or or even the companies themselves like it, it, it's it's Oftentimes really easy to know in the tax context. This is a tax issue. I got to get some specialized tax advice Um, Or in the IP issue, this is a patent I need to get some specialized IP input But sometimes the securities issues are not painfully evident and a lot of people rely on well This is just the way, you know, I saw so-and-so do it or this is the way it's always been done Um, And that's that's really scary to me. So I've seen some really really bad deals
0: in that context. So you've got a really specialized area of knowledge and there's a lot of practitioners in wyoming who have a general practice have a client from one reason you know a car accident or maybe they help with a divorce or something And years later they're going to be coming into the office and they're going to just want that lawyer to help them even though you know the lawyer may realize that this is touching on securities law i mean are you available to come in then as co-counsel on something like that and just help out that lawyer um, with some of these issues on a case-by-case basis? Oh, for
1: sure. We, we consult a lot of times with lawyers from uh, around the state on just, hey, just oftentimes it's nothing more than just issue spotting, right, so that the lawyer can in turn issue spot for their clients and say, hey, may, maybe we do this and go forward, but at least I'm informing you of the risks now, right? And I'm not committing malpractice. And so if you want to go forward, go forward, but you're making an informed decision now. So um, a lot of times that's that's really the only
0: step I, th- I think that is needed is just helping spot the issues. So what value does having your LLM and entrepreneurial law allow you to bring your clients
1: so I think uh, with with my particular practice focus, um, you know, I, I oftentimes refer to myself as a quarterback. A lot of my my, my sort of stereotypical client are technology related companies that are growing. That uh, a lot a lot of my companies have taken some private investment money, so they're on a private investment growth curve. Um, so you know they might be dealing with employees, employment issues. They're probably dealing with, you know, manufacturing or, you know, vendor issues. They're dealing with all types of contract issues. They're dealing with, you know, corporate management and, and just corporate operation issues. Um, most of them have intellectual property to, to some extent, whether it's trademarks or patents that they're dealing with. And so, you know, I, I really consider myself first and foremost, a business and corporate attorney, kind of helping people navigate. And that's, that's where I get, the most satisfaction is just helping people get business done, you know, and, and get business done efficiently. And uh, uh, but, but backing up from that, I, I think I've made myself at least dangerous in a lot of these other areas like intellectual property, like tax, um, so that when these clients are, are navigating complex and, and interesting issues, uh, I'm usually the first one to tell them, hey, I think we can handle this, or we need to bring in some more horsepower on this particular issue and so I think uh, I think what a lot of my clients appreciate about me or at least the feedback that I get is that that upfront honesty to know um, this is something that there might be some risks involved but we can assess those risks and let's you know make some decisions and move forward or hey this is wading into some really serious territory Uh, we need to get some more specialized expertise or you guys need to go do some more digging and research on this issue and so I think that's where a lot of my clients Um, I think the best value out of me is when I'm more ingrained in their day-to-day operations and I I have a really good sense of what's going on and what's important to them and I can help them make decisions quickly.
0: And I would think that the process of getting the LLM probably on some level more than any other gave you the ability to issue spot and then know if you could solve the problem, but then it also probably gave you a pretty phenomenal network of people to reach out to when you could spot a problem but not know what the answer is.
1: Yeah, truthfully, that it has been one of the things for me that's probably as valuable as any is, is personal relationships with lawyers that are phenomenally talented in different areas. Um, to, to this day, one of the uh, lawyers that I, I made uh, incredibly fast friends with um, was an attorney who practiced for an extremely large law firm out on the West Coast in San Francisco and Los Angeles. And since went on on his own and has a small boutique firm that all they do is, is securities uh, work for uh, companies everywhere from from public offerings to, to, to mergers and acquisitions and a really, really highly technical uh, skill set that they've got at that firm. And so I, I love it because every time I get a securities deal that I'm looking at, if I run up against an issue, they're always the first people I call. And I know them, I know them well, and we can work through things or... Um, I've referred cases out to them, or we've co counseled deals together, and so I love having that network. The same could be said of of, of tax and IP. I've got attorneys I work with um, that do really specialized patent work. So if it's something that is out out of our depth, um, and I know it's out of our depth, we've we've got people that we can call that I know and have known now for a long time, and and so that is really that's really helpful, and I think it it um, it helps our clients because. Um, you know clients know the drill you have to go about finding a lawyer sometimes that's hard enough but now to go to a city center outside of Wyoming to try to find a specialized attorney on something that's incredibly daunting and people get really taken advantage of and you know pushed around in terms of price and what it's going to cost them and so uh, that's that's something that I'm really happy that we can offer to our clients is is introductions and working with these other lawyers and making sure that they're getting what they need for a low cost
0: and I guess sometimes you just need the gal that knows everything there is to know about subparagraph G. Absolutely. Yep, that's right. And so, I mean, do you see the kind of uh, your role as a quarterback continuing, or do you see yourself getting more and more specialized as you go forward? Yeah, it, it definitely seems to
1: be, uh, as we go forward, there seems to be more and more demand for the specialized um, case in point. No, nobody saw it coming. <laughs> I can't claim that I in my attempts to plan out my uh, my business uh, saw it coming either but this the arrival of this blockchain and cryptocurrency stuff within the last year has been just crazy and um, so, so I guess where I was going with that is uh, no matter how you slice it, the the analysis of cryptocurrency and tokens and, and all these, new types of offerings that our statute um, paved the way for and that are being discussed on a, on a federal level, all of those necessarily involve a, sort of a you know, parallel securities analysis. And so in the last six months, I've spent more time with securities law than I would have ever anticipated. It's not now just, hey, am I, am I getting my investors in properly and legally? Am I doing this private placement, you know? Uh, according to the exemption guidelines, it's now we have this brand new classification of exempt securities in Wyoming that didn't exist 90 days ago, and so how does that fit in with the federal regulations? And um, you know, our our phones have been ringing off the hook here with people wanting to see what Wyoming's all about in terms of these crypto offerings or token offerings or utility token offerings or whatever the case may be, and so. Yeah, I, like I said, I couldn't have even seen that a year ago, but already there's been a tremendous increase in demand for, for the securities background specifically. Um, and an, another area that I see not going away anytime soon is intellectual property. Um, I mean, every company that we represent and work with has intellectual property needs, and um, I, I, don't, I don't see that lessening
0: anytime soon. Well, then when you're dealing with something that's literally happening, evolving day-to-day, that's got to be a malpractice nightmare how do you kind of address that when advising clients on blockchain or something that's literally there's no established law and it's evolving day to day
1: yeah well that's true but i also view it the other way it's kind of the wild west you know in that because there's no established law and we're all wading through it together the, the approach i've taken we can listen to this podcast in 10 years and tell me if i was right or not but The approach I've taken is to be really transparent up front with the people that are regulating. And, you know, they they know as well as we do that the decisions we're making are unguided because there is no developed law in a lot of these in a lot of these arenas, particularly here in Wyoming. So I think, um, well, yeah, there's certainly a malpractice risk on the other hand, because there is so little established law, there's also the opportunity to participate in making that law and and sort of paving the way. And so that's really exciting to me.
0: And so probably just a matter of full disclosure with the clients.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm, yes, I'm taking a a, a tone with clients in the last 90 days regarding this blockchain crypto stuff that is brutally honest to say, we'll help you, but we don't know what this looks like. We don't know what it's going to look like in six months. We don't know what it's going to look like in 30 days. Um, there's rules being promulgated, both at the state and federal level that are still in the works and still being discussed and, and who knows where that goes. And so, yeah, we're making quick decisions uh, with limited information and that's the best we can do.
0: So when you're dealing with the people who are interested in investing in blockchain and things like that, I think you would be dealing with on average a person who is much more risk tolerant than the average business client.
1: Um, yeah, I think you are probably right. Maybe that's a stereotype, maybe not. Um, and, and maybe I'm a little bit hardwired in that way anyways, just because of a lot of the clients that I spend my time with are those people that are taking risks with their life savings and uh, you know leaving their jobs to start new companies and things like that. So risk is just kind of the name of the game. And having risk tolerance is, is part of it. Um, but yeah, there is definitely, uh, and I, in some ways I really admire it, at least the people that I think are approaching it properly and, and, uh, not in a shady fashion, but there's something to admire about these people that see a new opportunity, see a new technology, see an uncertain regulatory landscape and still say, let's, let's go for it. I think I've got a really cool product or idea and I want to, I want to go for it. Um, and, and to be part of helping them wade through that and part of their decision-making process in terms of how to do it and how to do it legally, as far as we know, is is, is really fun. So I, I appreciate most of those clients that have a huge appetite for risk, but also uh, listen to their lawyer.
0: <laughs> and I would think, too, with the extra fiduciary duties of being a lawyer – there's probably a part where you actually actually have to kind of analyze whether your client is sophisticated and knowingly taking a risk, or if they're naive and you really need to educate them so that they, you know, that they're knowingly taking the risk. Absolutely, absolutely. We um, we've seen
1: that a lot. We've uh, I wouldn't say a lot, but we've turned down clients that we felt were just maybe it, it's not that they're naive because we all have clients that come into our office and don't know much about a particular topic and it's our job to educate them on whatever area of law it is so that they know the parameters in which they need to operate and make decisions. So that's nothing new. Um, What's disheartening is to see those clients that you explain that to and they don't, they either don't listen or they want to disregard um, what you're laying out for them in terms of, framing their decision matrix going forward. Th- those are the types of clients that I, I find to be, you know, not a good fit for me because I, I want to at least know the person I'm talking to. They they might ultimately hear me and understand the risk I'm laying out and make a conscious decision that hey I've got to do this anyways. Um, that's okay with me. But it's it's those people that are gonna be um, you know cavalier about it that scare me.
0: They're gonna call enough lawyers till someone finally tells them what yeah, they going to hear. I think that's right. And so I read your law review article on entrepreneurship, and what what really struck me is there's so many elements of psychology, demographics, you know, social sciences, economics, that all go into kind of the entrepreneurial equation. How different was your studying of entrepreneurship than kind of the traditional study of law?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, in in fairness, my, my article was not so much about, well, it really wasn't at all about the practice of law so much as it was, I'm just passionate about developing kind of the entrepreneurial culture in Wyoming. Um, I'm super jealous in some respects of other states and other locales that have a more robust entrepreneurial culture. And that's not to say that Wyoming doesn't have awesome entrepreneurs and, I mean, um uh, I grew up on a ranch. I mean, ranchers at their heart and core are entrepreneurs and risk takers. And I, I love that. But what I mean when I say this is a culture where people are starting up companies and they're failing and it's happening visibly. And there's a life cycle of company that's visible, right? Where companies are getting seed stage funding and they're proving up concepts and then they're hiring employees and raising you know more capital to commercialize. And there's a sort of visible life cycle of companies where young people can get jobs in those startup companies people that are looking to invest in companies have easy entry points to invest and support those companies and um, there's just kind of this this ongoing menu of activity that people that are passionate about startups, entrepreneurship can plug themselves in at, at any one of those points and there's a tremendous amount of research and academic literature out there about um, what this community looks like and what this entrepreneurial ecosystem is the buzz term looks like and it exists in a lot of places Probably the closest to us is Boulder um, Salt Lake City certainly has it going, you know, Boise, Idaho has it going um, And so I'm, I'm really envious of those locations because while there are really cool people and smart people doing really cool things in Wyoming we we haven't really nailed down sort of that visible entrepreneurial life cycle where people can inject themselves and and participate in it on a continual basis. And so that's really what my article was more focused on, was how do we help build that? And what types of policy and legal things could the legal profession look at doing to participate in that? And uh, I'm thankful to have been appointed by the governor to endow because that's a large part of the conversation that we're having at Endow now is just that, is how do we help foster that that ecosystem and that, that visible life cycle of these companies to allow more people in Wyoming to participate in that.
0: And so it seems to me that one of the things that, along with the nuts and bolts of the securities law and things like that that you learned in the process, you also really got a chance to study things um, outside of maybe what would be traditionally the field of law but that overlay into what your client's needs are. Yeah, I think that's, I think
1: that's true. Um, although, well, I mean, I, I, so you, you alluded to it a minute ago. Yeah, there's certain, there's certain um, data points and sort of fields of study that become really interesting, right? I mean, marketing is a great example, right? Every company that I represent has a marketing budget and is trying to figure out how to roll out a product or a service and, you know, start from scratch to create demand. And so understanding that demand requires understanding consumer behaviors and who their target market and customers are and what those people think and feel. And that's all really, really interesting stuff. I don't think um, it's not my forte, right? It's not I'm not going to direct them in making those decisions. But spending a little bit of time understanding how important it is to your clients and how important it is to them and understanding just sort of the current trends. What the state of the art is in terms of technology and marketing definitely helps me have a better conversation with clients when they're when they're talking about, you know, whatever their problem is. Um, So I think as as an example, you're right. But a lot of lawyers have really cool educational exposure to different types of things like that. I I think lawyers just need to be aggressive about figuring out ways to apply that skill set in different
0: ways within the practice of law. That kind of goes to my next question. I mean, there's the old joke, you know, in a small town, if you have one lawyer, he'll starve, two, they'll do all right, and three, they'll make a killing. It almost seems like at this point for us to reach that, I don't know if it'd be a tipping point or a snowball effect where you get that entrepreneurial culture, We probably need more lawyers with your skill set in this area. Um,
1: I I agree, and they're coming. I mean, there there are more here, and what I love seeing as I travel around Wyoming is the little pockets of activity that are starting to gain momentum um, of course a lot of the state thinks that we live in a bubble here in Cheyenne and uh, maybe that's true maybe it's not um, we we are I guess in a bubble to the extent that we're close to the Colorado Front Range and so we get sort of a lot of exposure and bleed over I think from that at least in, in my in my world in sort of the entrepreneurial finance world there's a lot of Um, Interplay, But I think we have really cool pockets of that happening in Jackson and Sheridan and Casper and all over the state where there's these little hubs, uh, clusters of entrepreneurial activity, of people starting up companies, of people investing, of people spending time understanding what research looks like, um, what intellectual property looks like that grows out of that research and then commercialization of it. and again, the more visible examples we have of that, I think the, the, the more demand it creates on, on this type of lawyer, on this breed of lawyer. And I think that's coming. Like, we have some really cool examples right now of companies that are super high growth, that are, that are exploding, hiring people in Wyoming that have been through this life cycle. And it just it just demands a little bit different type of lawyer than it used to, I think.
0: And so as that as that need continues to grow, I mean, what's what would you recommend kind of first steps for a lawyer who wants to expand their practice into this area of law? Uh, so I think
1: for, for me that question starts with are you wanting to expand your knowledge base for existing clients and these are clients that you have an ongoing relationship with, or are you wanting to to, to market to new clients? Because to me, to me that's a big difference. A lot of lawyers out there have a really great client roster of clients that they work with on a daily basis um, well I'll, I'll just give I'll give an example um, I have become very close with a, a gentleman that's president of an energy company here in uh, an industrial energy company here in Wyoming I don't represent them I don't do work for them um, I'm not trying to get them as a client so if any lawyers listening to this and things I'm trying to steal your client I'm not um, his his roster of lawyers right now, he told me, it looks like um, one or two corporate lawyers. He's got a couple of employment lawyers. And then he's got a whole team of regulatory, you know, permitting and th- those types of lawyers. That's the, that's the suite of lawyers that he works with. And I met him recently at a, at a blockchain event. And what he told me was, we are actively exploring... Um, an application for blockchain and there's this tremendous opportunity we see with developing some intellectual property maybe it would require some investment from our company to develop this maybe not but how do we roll that out how do we protect the idea how do we run with the idea how do we build this idea how do we scale it and he was expressing frustration because they haven't talked to a single lawyer that has even approached that subject with them or helped him understand the legal implications of that and so not that his lawyers are in any way, shape, or form doing a bad job. I'm sure, you know, they're maybe um, representing that company in the way that they know best and what they've traditionally done. My, my point with that is I think lawyers can always look for ways to be more integrated with their clients and looking forward, right, to what the client needs are evolving into. And in this particular case, may, maybe these lawyers um, are missing an opportunity to get more integrated and, and build their their client Uh, relationship with that particular client going forward by you know diving into some new topics and really seeking to understand these issues that are that are coming so that's that's an example to me of of building a service base for an existing client right and that's that's different than hey I want to learn about uh, intellectual property because I think it would be really neat to go represent some artists or something and help them understand how to copyright and trademark their work and their brand and, and things like that um you know, that, that is, I think mean, you can start by identifying who those clients are, what you think those client needs are, talking to some people and then go get that skill set. And that's the, the, the cool thing about being a lawyer and having access to CLE and, and you know, different um, tapping points of, of knowledge and expertise is you can go get that. And so I think that's where it would start for me is what, what do you wanna do with that knowledge and how are you gonna
0: utilize it? And let's just say the young lawyer that wants to start getting some of these clients Let's say it has some free time, but definitely doesn't have the resources and maybe the skills or time management needed to get the LLM. I mean, what are the best resources sources out there for someone to kind of pursue this knowledge base um, without going the LLM route?
1: Yeah, um, so I obviously I take CLEs on an ongoing basis, like everybody does, and and I will say as I've as I've gained expertise in some of these specialized areas and the the two that I will claim that I have some expertise in is securities and intellectual property as I've gained some specialized expertise in those two areas What I discovered is there's nothing wrong of course ever with any CLE um, because you're learning something But you know those you know those one-hour CLE where it's gonna scratch the surface on some really deep regulatory issue That's probably not the place to start. Maybe it maybe it is but I've had much better success starting with those, as much of a slugfest as it is, those six or eight hour CLEs where you're really getting an overview, you understand the context of what you're talking about, and then you dive in from there. And so I would I would caution lawyers, I've seen a lot of deal documents over the years where it cites some you know buzzword from intellectual property law or something like that, but it cites it in the wrong context or it tries to apply it right in the wrong context. And so... I think uh, lawyers are very, I don't know, maybe, maybe they're not all, I shouldn't say this. I'm very visual in my thinking when it comes to regulatory frameworks, right? And I kind of need to understand the overlay of where where the context is for this regulation and law and what the policy of it is. And then it's much easier to understand the finite points and drill down. And so my recommendation to people getting into a new area is that you, you take that approach instead of just a
0: little, you know, one-off approach, and you don't understand where the context and how it fits. Would it also kind of make sense for them to kind of maybe add one arrow at a time to their quiver and not necessarily try and master everything, but say, I'm going to help one client with a logo, copyright? Yeah, for sure. And, and I think there's also an element of fun
1: to, you know, diving into something new. I think um, our profession has... Um, sort of a built-in reluctance to do things that are unfamiliar, you know, and sometimes that's a little frustrating because we're all competent, smart lawyers, and if you sit down and put your mind to it, you can figure out this stuff, right? I mean, that's one of our mantras around this office is, hey, if they can figure it out, we can figure it out. And uh, so I I feel that way. If I can figure it out, anybody else can figure this stuff out. It just takes a little bit of time to get pointed in the right
0: direction and, and sit down and work through it. Definitely talking to you, I can tell that you found your passion with the area of law that you're in. Um, Would you say that getting your LLM and focusing on this area has allowed it to be fun for you to go to work? A hundred thousand percent, yes.
1: Um, Yeah, it was for me, it was the best decision I ever made in my law practice. It gave me the platform to go get exactly the kind of clients that I wanted. Um, it's given me the opportunity to build exactly the type of practice that, that I want to build in Wyoming. And, uh, and what's fun for me is I still view myself as a very young lawyer. Um, I know I'm 12, 13 years into the practice of law, but uh, I'm still learning every day and always sometimes scared at what I'm learning um, and how quickly I'm learning it. It makes me feel like I don't know much, but uh, it's also exciting to me because I feel like um, I've got a lot of runway yet to, to, to build even more.
0: Well, this has been fantastic. I, you know, I can't tell you that I wouldn't expect more than a handful of lawyers to say that they have fun every day at work. And I'll definitely know I'll be going home to my whiteboard and brainstorming how I can incorporate some of the ideas you've expressed uh, today. And so thank you very much and appreciate your time.
1: Thank you.